listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, we're going to go to the book of Titus. And uh, we've been looking through this series called The Gift. And we looked at the gift of the Magi or the wise men. We saw the gift of the shepherds. And then we saw last week the gift to Mary. And so this week, we're going to look at the gift to us. And as I said, we're going to go to Titus. And it's not one of those books that we typically associate with Christmas, but Titus has got the Christmas story actually all through it. In fact, chapter 2, it talks about that. And we're going to begin today looking at the third chapter of Titus. And, you know, my kids love going to the mailbox and finding a letter that is addressed to them. They just love that. Anytime maybe it's a card from a grandparent or it is a letter from a friend, but they love getting letters from people, seeing their name there, opening it up. And that's what we're looking at today is Titus actually receives a letter from Paul. Now, uh, kids, you've been learning this. Is Titus in the Old Testament or the New Testament? It is in the New Testament. And who wrote it? When in doubt, it's usually Paul. He's usually a good one to go with. And you're right, Paul wrote this one to the book of Titus. And so he's writing Titus to encourage him. Titus is trying to follow Jesus. He's trying to lead his church well. But there's a group of people that are trying very hard to discourage Titus, trying to lead him astray. And so Paul is going to write to Titus to encourage him to continue to believe and to follow Jesus And so we're going to see what he's going to pick up in verse 1. He's going to paint the kind of life that pleases God, that God's pleased with. It begins in chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. He says, remind them to be submissive to their rulers and authorities. And parents love this verse, kids. And what that means is that God has placed people in our lives to be authority over us. It could be a boss at our work. It could be a teacher at school, it could be a coach, but especially a parent. And we're to respect that authority. We're to be submissive to what they say, that they know best most of the time. And then it says to be obedient, meaning to obey, whether it's the laws God has given us or the people that God has placed over us, that we're to be obedient in following them. The third thing he says is to be ready for every good work. Meaning each and every day, God puts things in our lives, in our path, that we are to do good deeds that we're to follow through with. Man, it may be opening the door for someone carrying some packages. Maybe somebody has a flat tire and we stop to help them out. Unloading the groceries from the car, loading or unloading the dishwasher. There's all kinds of deeds that God puts in our lives. Maybe singing a card, an encouragement to someone else. And when I read that, I'm actually feeling pretty good about myself so far. I mean, I try to respect my boss. I try to obey my leaders when they ask me to do something. I I try to look for ways to be helpful. But then it says in verse 2, to speak evil of no one. You know, it means to always use kind words. 
My mom always said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. It means to never call anyone a name. It means to not make fun of people. But I know me, most of the time my mouth is what gets me in trouble. And he says, avoid quarreling. It means don't fight, don't argue, don't talk back. It means that we're not seeing things and I'm reading this and thinking, well, now I'm not feeling so good about myself. I can do a few things well, but my mouth seems to always get me in trouble, and then it gets worse. It says to be gentle. It means peaceful in our actions, in our words. It, it, it means to be peace. It means not stirring up trouble, not tattling on others, not spreading rumors, trying to make peace with people instead of fighting. And this says, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It means to be nice. It means to be considerate. But notice he says, perfect courtesy towards all. It means including others and not excluding people. Treating everyone the same, no matter who they are. Treating everyone with respect and kindness. It means putting other people's needs before our own. It means never saying that's not fair when someone gets something that we don't get. Now, look at this, and that's a very difficult list to live up to. And I would say, in fact, it's an impossible list for us to do. But then Paul reminds Timothy or reminds Titus of the kind of life that, that pleases God. But then he's going to show us now it even gets even worse. He's going to remind Titus of how we actually are. Look at verse 3. He says, For we ourselves, we were once foolish, meaning unreasonable, that we're not willing to listen to reason, disobedient, just refusing to obey, because honestly, we like to be in charge. doesn't matter how old you are, we like to be in charge. Whether you wear your glasses on the end of your nose or you can see perfectly, we like being in charge. We don't like being told when to take a bath or when to go to bed or what to eat or when we get to hang out with our friends. We like to be the masters of our own domain. And then he says, you're led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And it means that we lack self-control, that we're easily tempted and, and we follow or fall into that and soon make wrong decisions. And then it says, passing our days in malice and envy. Malice is a word that means just meanness. My mom used to say that to me all the time. Man, son, sometimes you just, you're just meanness. It's just when someone does something to us and that we want to get even. Then he says the word envy. It means jealous. And when someone gets something that we want, then we're not happy for them. We think Life's unfair. We think when things are unfair that, that we're not happy when they get something that we want. And then he says, and we're actually hated by others and hating one another. And when God looks at the world, that's what he sees. He sees hate, that we're hateful with our words, we're hateful with our actions. Even our attitudes are just filled with hate. And so what Paul is doing, he's describing these differences, one life that pleases God and one life that doesn't. 
The Bible calls all of these horrible things that we think and we do, the Bible wraps all of that up into one word, sin. And the bad thing about sin is that sin is what separates us from having a relationship with God, that he wants to have this relationship with us, but he cannot have anything to do with sin. In fact, we come into this life, we are born in sin. And then we go on committing sins ourselves. And what Paul does, he's painting an absolutely hopeless picture. He says, you can't do this. A life that pleases God, your best actions on your best day would never be enough to please Him. When God sees our lives, He sees lives that are full of hate and jealousy and disobedience and selfishness and wickedness. And it's a lot like this. I mean, this is what God sees. He sees our tainted lives full of sin, of jealousy and hate and envy and selfishness and wickedness. And this is how God sees. He sees us for who we really are. In fact, He sees every single sin, even the ones that no one else sees. That God sees every single one of them. And He can't have anything to do with us. So if God wants, if he was to just leave us alone, if God was to leave us alone when we die, here's the truth of the Bible, is that when we die, we will have to pay for each and every one of those sins. Every lie, every mean word we say, every bad thought, and it would take us an eternity to pay for all of those sins. In fact, the Bible calls that place hell. It's a place where sin will be punished forever, that God will punish those sins. He will pour out His wrath on each and every one of those, and it will take us an eternity to pay for all of those. Very hopeless situation. But God wanted to do something. God wanted to provide, in some ways, a present. He wanted to provide a way for all of our sins to be forgiven that he wanted the penalty for that to be paid. In fact, he wanted to rescue us. And Paul reminds now Titus of God's plan. Look at verse 4. And here is where you see, in the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared. You know what Paul's referring to? He's referring to the moment that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That Paul is talking about the time that we celebrate, we call Christmas the birth of Jesus. And I'd like to remind us of that story. And maybe you've already read it this year, uh, but I would love to read it from the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have one of these, man, this is a one to have. Sally Lloyd-Jones takes the scriptures and she paints such a great picture. And so I want to read for us the account that she calls He's Here. It says, everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help his people, just as he'd promised in the beginning. But how would he come? What would he be like? What would he do? Mountains would have bowed down. Seas would have roared. Trees would have clapped their hands. But the earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, he came in. And when no one was looking, in the darkness he came. 
there was a young girl who was engaged to a man named Joseph. Joseph was the great, 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 great grandson of King David. One morning, this girl was minding her own business when suddenly a great warrior of light appeared right there in her bedroom. He was Gabriel, and he was the angel, the special messenger from heaven. When she saw the tall, shining man standing there, Mary was frightened. You don't need to be scared, Gabriel said. God is very happy with you. Mary looked around to see if perhaps he was talking of someone else. Mary, Gabriel said, and he laughed with such gladness that Mary's eyes filled with sudden tears. Mary, you're going to have a baby, a little boy, and you will call him Jesus. He is God's own son. He is the one. He's the rescuer. The God who flung the planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just one word. The one who could do everything, anything at all was making himself small and coming down as a baby. Wait, God was sending a baby to rescue the world? But it's too wonderful. Mary said and felt her heart beating hard. How can that be true? Is anything too wonderful for God? Gabriel asked. So Mary trusted God more than what her eyes could see. And she believed. I'm God's servant, she said. Whatever God says, I will do. Sure enough. It was just as the angel has said. Nine months later, Mary was almost ready to have her baby. Now Mary and Joseph had to take a trip to Bethlehem, the town of King David from, uh, was from. But when they reached the little town, when they found every room was full, every bed was taken. Go away, the innkeeper told them. There isn't any place for you. Where would they stay? Soon Mary's baby would come. They couldn't find anywhere except an old, tumble-down stable. So they stayed where the cows and the donkeys and the horses stayed. And there... In the stable, amongst the chickens and the donkey and the cows, in the quiet of the night, God gave the world his wonderful gift. The baby would change the world was born, his baby son. Mary and Joseph wrapped him up and kept him warm. They made a soft bed of straw and used the animal's feeding trough as his cradle. And they gazed in wonder at God's great gift, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us because, of course, he had. But doesn't that seem very strange? Now, God had a plan to forgive our sins, to rescue us, and to make it possible for him to have a relationship with us, and he sends a baby. Now, I know a little bit about babies. We've had three I know they eat, sleep, and poop. But you know what? They're not much help. Why in the world would God send a baby to rescue? Well, then Paul tells us in verse 5. He said, he saved us. See, Jesus would not stay a baby. He would grow up to be a little boy to run barefooted and catch grasshoppers and play hide-and-go-seek. He grew up to be a teenager who played sports and do chores around the house and hang out with his friends. He grew up to be a young man who would work alongside his father and learn his skill. So he did many of the things we do. 
except he did so submitting to those in authority, his parents, his teachers. He was obedient. He was ready for every opportunity to be helpful. He never spoke evil. He never quarreled. He always was gentle and peaceful. He showed perfect courtesy to everyone. And when tempted to do evil, hateful things, but he always made the right decision. You see, he did the things that we should do. He lived a life that pleases God, his Father. Then Jesus did something that made it possible for our sins to be forgiven. See, Jesus grew from that baby into a man, and he lived a life that we could never live on our own, even on our best of days. So then Jesus allowed something to happen to him that made it possible to forgive sins. So I want to read once again from the Jesus Storybook Bible. This one's entitled, The Sun Stopped Shining. He said, so you're a king, are you? The Roman soldiers jeered. Then you'll need a crown and a robe. They gave Jesus a crown made out of thorns and put a purple robe on him and pretended to bow down to him. Your majesty, they said. Then they whipped him. They spat on him. They didn't understand that this was the prince of life, the king of heaven and earth, who had come to rescue them. The soldiers made him a sign, our king, and nailed it to the wooden cross. They walked up the hill outside the city. Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong, but they were going to kill him the way criminals were killed. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of armies would have flown to his side if he called. If you were really the son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course they were right. Jesus could have climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop. Like when he healed the little girl and stilled the storm and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time, And the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. What a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down Jesus' face, the face of the one who wiped away every tear from every eye. Even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountains shook. Rocks split in two until it seemed that the whole world would break, that creation itself would tear itself apart. The full force of the storm of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down on His own Son instead of His people. That was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy His children whose hearts were filled with sin. Then Jesus shouted out in a loud voice, It is finished. And it was. And He had done it. Jesus had rescued the whole world. 
Father, Jesus cried, I give you my life. And with a great sigh, he let himself die. Strange clouds and shadows filled the sky, purple, orange, black, like a bruise. You see, Jesus not only lived a life that we could never live, he then goes and dies the death that we deserved. That Jesus paid our sins on the cross cross so that we didn't have to. But then Paul continues. We're saved a very particular way. He says, not of works done by us in righteousness. Because we're not saved by the good things that we do. We're not saved because we, got, we obeyed our parents on Tuesday. And we're not saved because we get along with our neighbors on Friday. And we're not saved because we treated a girl with respect on 75% of our dates. Our best deeds on our best day would never be good enough. But he says, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, we're saved because Jesus lived that life that we never could have lived. He was submissive and obedient and gentle. He wasn't hateful. He wasn't selfish. And we're saved because He died the death that we deserved. Jesus lives that life for us, and then he dies the death for us. You see, kids, that's why Christmas is so important. That Jesus had to come as a baby to live the life in our place that pleases his Father. And so here's how this works. We come into this world and we're sinful, And then we take all kinds of things that we've done, decisions we've made, words we've said, attitudes we've had, even in our hearts, that no one else sees, but God sees it. And the Bible calls all of this sin. And this is who I am. I'm disobedient. I'm selfish. I'm jealous. I'm hateful to others. I exclude people that are different from me. I use people because of the things I want. And this is the reality. This is how God sees us. In fact, he sees every single sinful thought we've ever even had in our head. And God could have done nothing. He could have done nothing to help me. And I would spend an eternity in hell paying for every single one of these sins. But then when one night in Bethlehem, a baby was born, but he was no ordinary baby. He was the very... Son of God. And this baby grew up and he experienced many of the same things that you and I have, except that baby never sinned. And then one day that baby grew up into a man and he was led up a hill and he died an innocent man between two thieves. He died on that cross not because he deserved it, but because you and I did. So the Christmas story is really about a sinless son that came to a sinful people. But not to punish us for our sins, but to bear the penalty so that we could be forgiven. And what happens is when you realize your need for Jesus, and you go, I'm absolutely hopeless to save myself. And I confess these sins, and I ask Jesus to forgive me. You see, Jesus lived that life that I never could have. And then he died that death that I deserved. And the only way to experience forgiveness and eternal life in heaven is to what he did. 
So when this happens, when I do that, God no longer sees these sins that I've done. In fact, He sees the perfect sinlessness of His Son. And it's this way. Jesus takes every single one of these sins upon His back and He paid for that price on the cross as if He had committed them. And then He takes a perfect life and perfect obedience to the Father and then He turns around and He says, no, it's, almost, or it's as if you had lived that life. It's as if I'd never sinned. Jesus takes all the sins that I have done as if they were His. And then he turns around and gives me credit for all the perfect things that he has done. And that's why Christmas is so important. In fact, the only gift that could save me, it's not a toy, it's not some clothes, it's not a game. It had to be God himself. And so kids, teenagers, I would want you to know this. My greatest hope and the hope of your parents, in fact, every adult in here, is that one day that you would come to realize who you are and your need for Jesus. And that you would reach out to Him and ask Him to forgive you of your sins. You would repent, ask Him to save you, knowing that you then get to spend eternity in heaven with God your Creator. Is that one day you would come to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I would say, if you haven't, if you've got questions about that, please Go and talk to your parents. Ask them questions about it. Ask them what Jesus has done for them. And so this is what I want to do this morning. I want to pray, and we're going to close, and we're going to pray for you this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, that you came down from heaven and you sent your own son to live the life that we never could have lived, and then he died the death that we deserved. And so, Lord, we celebrate Christmas. And, Lord, we want to think about the birth of your Son, that you came and dwelt among us, that you took on our humanity, lived for us, and then gave us an example. And we believe that one day you will send him again to call all of your children home. And, Lord, we pray that that day is soon. Lord, we pray for the salvation of all of our children and young people that they would come to know you and help us as their church and as their Bible study leaders, as their parents, to lead them well. And that when whatever the world would offer them, that it would not be a substitute for knowing who you are. So Lord, we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.